Hi there. Let me ask you a couple of questions and see if you're on track here with where I'm at. First of all, do you think that science should be objective? In other words, not controlled by special interests or people, organizations, corporations with conflicts of interest? Okay, well, if it's an affirmative from you after the first question, how about the next one? Do you recognize that nearly all scientific breakthroughs are made by scientists? In fact, sometimes they're people, they're not professional scientists, but people who have bucked the status quo. They see things differently from people who are part of that main establishment of science. And then over time, their theories are tested, experimented with, until they become validated by others. And eventually, what seemed to be a very radical idea becomes received wisdom. Now, where are you with that? So, if you're still with me, um, please listen on. What I'm going to be talking to is a detailed article that I've written about trust in science. This is going to become a very big issue moving forward. And there's a tool, there's a weapon that the establishment is using now, and it's called scientific misinformation. It's basically a, a progeny, a child of what happened with political information that was born in the Trump era. And we now have a situation where big tech has got together with big pharma, um, big social, big corporation, they have come together and in essence they are defining a way to segregate a specific view of science that maintains the status quo. And what we're arguing is that this is incredibly dangerous for our future and AI will start to play a very significant role. As we say in our article, we use an example with ChatGPT and see what it's saying about the dangers of scientific misinformation. So if you're still with me, listen on. So there are three things that I can talk to you about briefly that really suggest this is becoming an issue of the moment. First of them is take note that in May, the Nobel Foundation, the pinnacle of um, scientific endeavor and achievement, the Nobel Prize Summit um, is going to be held and the three words that's used to describe this, this summit to try and dispel scientific misinformation is truth, trust and hope. And I find that really interesting because many of us scientists have long argued that there's probably no such thing as scientific truth. What is truth to someone may not be to another. And as science and scientific views change, as we understand more about the world, something that seemed a truth at one stage no longer is a truth. The issue of trust, well, who are we going to trust? And we're being asked to have almost blind trust, blind faith in institutions that haven't served the public well. I don't believe they've serve the scientific community well either. And hope, well, hey, we all want hope. 
But in order to have hope, we have to have integrity and we have to have objectivity. And those two things are really at risk now. The second major indicator of a need to really take note about what's happening around trust in science is that in the US, 50 organizations with international reach, medical scientific organizations have come together, all signed up to tackle scientific misinformation in the same way, very similar way to the way in which the um, Nobel Prize Summit is going to be handling it. It's about the institutions determining what is scientific misinformation, anything else that, that, that doesn't resonate with that being declared to be misinformation. The third thing is pre-bunking. You, you are likely to have heard about um, the, the process of debunking, debunking scientific myths. Well, pre-bunking, and this idea is really being launched by Google in a big way, and there's many partner organizations that have come on board with it. Um, after years of study, they've found ways of seeding information that allows the public to be able to then buy into what is misinformation, what isn't. And if they're being programmed or conditioned in very specific ways, this again is a system that loses objectivity. And, and Google's going to be the central player. It's already being tested in, in a number of countries. Um, so, um, and it's, it's very insidious. And AI is likely to play a very big role in all of it. So let's look at um, a statement that um, Professor Avi Loeb made um, uh, only a, a few months ago, which was really about arguing that if we don't accept unconventional ideas, this really talks to the second question I, I just raised, if we don't accept unconventional ideas, it's as bad as those who refuse to look through Galilea's telescope. One of the things that's happened in terms of our understanding of science is this conflation between technology and science. Um, technologies are developing at an extraordinarily rapid rate, but our ability to assess the impact of that technology, looking at the social, emotional, psychological, physiological, environmental impacts, long-term impacts of these technologies, we're not there yet. And so when we get very excited about a technology, bearing in mind that human beings have, have now, over the last um, century or so, been detached from systems, religious systems, spiritual, traditions that allow us to have a, a much broader holistic um, view of the world and also a moral compass around these issues. These have collapsed so that we're now basically have become much more narrowly focused on what we buy into, the, these benefits, these short-term benefits of technology, but we don't have the systems in place to really understand um, how they affect us. A good example would be the massive increase in 
EMFs and electromagnetic fields, new to nature electromagnetic fields that we're all being exposed to. The, the dosage to which we're being exposed of waveforms that life has not yet adapted to, we have little idea what kind of impact that, that has even on humans, particularly the non-thermal effects, let alone all the other organisms that rely on magnetic fields and um, obviously cosmic fields, which we've all, all of life has evolved with. And, and yet the, the dosage and the form of these new technologies, we don't understand exactly what we're doing, but yet we're still buying into it. Satellites are being thrown into outer space all the time with no consideration of dosage. We've seen a similar issue happen with chemicals in the environment. And we now have a, a, a situation in which um, the average person may be exposed to 20,000 industrial chemicals in a given day. What about EMFs? Are we not going to learn from history? So, in essence, what has happened is we now have a multi-headed hydra with big pharma, big biotech, big ag, big tech, big social, big media, all coming together to try and battle this idea of trust in science. And um, I want to take you through, um, you know, what, what is happening around this. The, the first thing that anyone needs to do is determine what is scientific misinformation? Who's defining it? Turns out there aren't absolutely um, agreed definitions of, of what it is or what it isn't. As I mentioned earlier, it, it, the idea of misinformation really took form during the Trump era because of the so-called development of political misinformation. It's been now translated into the scientific arena. A social scientist, Southwell, in 2022 did come up with a, a clear definition that's likely to become a very central, he's a, he's a very well-acknowledged social scientist, but he's, he's basically saying that there are two limbs to the definition. The first really is any claim that fails the relevant tests of validity based on, wait for it, the best available evidence or expert judgment at the time. So you can see this first limb is already set up to protect the status quo. It is the view. If the guys at Harvard, for example, decide that this is um, a particular viewpoint that they would like us to have, or Johns Hopkins or Imperial College, that is the view. People who um, have a different view, that will be termed to be lesser expertise and that those judgments will be derailed. The second um, limb is really this idea of recognizing that scientific misinformation is a bad thing for society. So he, he, he refers to it as a disorder arising from science that exists in the public context. So again, it's putting the blame on the public, on the people who are not scientists, who misunderstand what's going on, and it creates a disorder that is dangerous to society. So, you know, in summary, the, the first limb really is about the scientific orthodoxy determining what it is. 
it, it, it means that only institutions and experts who are directly involved in the process of scientific inquiry are able to determine what it is. But it also means, and this is really important now, it means that those people themselves are immune from the label of scientific misinformation. So it's a circular, self-fulfilling, non-objective definition. We would typically refer to such definitions as, as being flawed. Um, so what's happened is that these ideas have been taken into a research environment um, and um, a number of academic institutions came together with Kantar Public Health and published in a leading journal, um, PLOS Biology, Public Library of Science Biology, um, in January 2023, a major paper that's now been in the airwaves and really important to distill the central elements of this. The, the first point is that they say that it is our attitude that determines our position. So if we have a contrary attitude, apparently we're more likely to cherry pick specific data that suits us. Sounds very plausible, but to me, the whole thing becomes a lot less plausible when I see people in major institutions doing that as well. And I'm very concerned that they are immune from this. But it gets worse. It also says that dissenters are bad scientists. They have determined that anyone who goes up against this orthodoxy is a bad scientist. Now, that's why I asked you the questions at the outset. Surely some of the best science has come out of dissent. And I told you it got worse still. Well, apparently dissenters have this kind of pumped up sense of their own scientific understanding. They have an overconfidence of their understanding and generally they're wrong. So hey, if you think that the COVID-19 genetic vaccines are creating a problem out there, maybe doing more harm than good, I'm sorry, you just don't understand it. Even if you've got a whole bunch of data in front of you showing you that it does exactly that. So it's a very clever system. It's, it's already morphing into um, an institutionalized approach that is designed to really bring down anyone that speaks out against what the mainstream is doing. So in my article, I argue that there are four really fatal flaws with, with the approach. And I, I'm going to just take you through these very quickly now. So now let me just take you through these fatal flaws. The, the first of them is that in all this analysis, they don't seem to be taking into account at all any of the reasons why the public has basically been losing trust of these scientific institutions. So what, what I've done in the article is build a table that shows you the gulf between the positions that the authorities have claimed and the current position of the science. So we've looked at things like lockdowns, um, COVID-19 genetic vaccines, naturally acquired 
versus um, vaccine-induced immunity, masks, the origins of SARS-CoV-2, PCR tests, etc. I mean, these are the issues that, that for many people, they've gone, the last three years has not exactly been um, um, a emergence of extraordinary combination of great science and great technology that's had this amazing positive impact on society and yet it's positioned in that way. The second is that the orthodoxy fails to consider that it's not, when you look at dissent, dissent always comes actually from leading scientists initially. And this comes to, again, to the questions that I asked at the outset. So if you look at, um, you know, Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Kuldorf, Peter McCullough, Paul Marek, Pierre Corey, um, Bob Malone even. These people were, were championed and held revered by the medical and scientific establishment before COVID-19 came. And so when they had a single, you know, very substantial reason to oppose it, suddenly they became written off. And, you know, if we, if we look back at history and, and look at this very notion that it is these, if we're going to be looking at scientific breakthroughs, it is always this point of dissent when great, intelligent, broad-minded scientists see something that others don't see that real advances are made. And instead of allowing these people to engage in discourse so that their ideas can be put to the test, can be explored, they've just been sidelined, marginalized, discredited. And that is really, really bad for, for science. The third major flaw is that the term is being applied incredibly arbitrarily and it also means that you know the orthodoxy who engage in scientific misinformation as we've seen around lockdowns and COVID-19 vaccines and even origins of SARS-CoV-2 they're not held to the same standard and you know perversely what it means is the public the public who are not trained are actually being held to a higher standard than the scientific institutions, which is outrageous. And the final one is it ignores the extreme uncertainties in science itself. One of the things we've really seen over the last few years is the polarization of people. And it's typically we're being told there are two options. You can either take this track, the Teflon coded track, or, you know, you're going to be with the, the conspiracy theorists and the scientific inf misinformation buffs on this other track, sort of, you don't want to be there, do you? But the reality is that there is always a situation where there is a belief. If you look at science and the development of a hypothesis that is one of the fundamental tenets of the scientific method, it often does start with a belief that's put to the test. And eventually, we develop a view of knowledge, of established knowledge, receive wisdom, that is the result of this consistent logic structure that develops where 
data information is tested. Um, it has to be plausible. And over time, it is validated by multiple independent sources. Um, there is experiment, there's observation, there's experience, and it's reinforced, reinforced until the belief and the knowledge become one and the same thing. It doesn't mean it's not going to change when scientific views change. Um, and really the final dimension that I bring into what is going on is the new chess piece on the table. And that is, of course, artificial intelligence or AI. So what I did is go to chat GPT that many of you will have tried and I asked a very simple question. I asked the question is, you know, why is scientific misinformation dangerous? And in a very short space of time, I got four answers, four points to the answer. And um, the first one was that it, it can lead to um, the wrong kind of decision making. It could cause someone to not take a vaccine, for example, and that would expose the wider public to great risk. In the case of COVID-19, I find that pretty hard to accept because we know that the genetic vaccines do not stop transmission. Um, the second is that it can harm public health. And it specifically then immediately says people who believe scientific misinformation might take herbs or supplements. And, um, and, and that might delay their medical treatment. And that could be harmful, even deadly. So you can see that the programming within ChatGPT is already completely in support of this orthodox approach, even though in this last case, we know that the real winners, when you look at the um, results of studies, have been actually natural products. So um, the third part of the answer is that it says, and this really goes to the heart of the, of the question, scientific misinformation erodes public trust in science and scientific institutions. Well, how about if those scientific institutions are themselves engaging with scientific misinformation? Oh, of course, they can't because they're immune. And fourthly, and rather importantly, it can be scientific misinformation can be used for political gain. Well, on that point, I think we're all agreed. Um, and I think that's exactly how it is being used. And the principle of the major scientific institutions having worked out a way that gives them immunity from being labeled as issuers, um, emitters of scientific misinformation is a very clever plan indeed. So um, when we look at this idea of trust in institutions, We've also got to realize that the institutions and the agencies are very closely intertwined with the governments. And it's fascinating if you look at some of the work from Pew Research Center, there are many other examples of this, that at the moment, trust in governments and government authorities is at an all-time low. And I think that's one of the reasons that scientific misinformation is being used now as a mechanism 
to try and essentially sideline anyone that's not playing the game. So how, how can we conclude? Well, bottom line, I would argue as a scientist of some 40 years standing is let's not give up our trust in science. Let's just give up our trust in bad science. So when we set up the Alliance for Natural Health 20 years ago, we set out with two major prongs to our approach. One was about supporting good science. The other was about supporting good law. Why? Because we saw that there were major problems with bad science and bad law. We've had to wait 20 years for probably what is the most despicable event in, um, in science. And if we don't, if the public and the grassroots don't sort this one out, I really would be very, very concerned about the future of humanity itself. So we really need to redefine scientific misinformation from an objective standpoint. And we've got to agree that no one can be exempt from it, not even if they sit in these major institutions. We can only really base our trust on authorities generally when they act on unbiased information that is in the best possible public interest and that hasn't happened. So scientific information isn't a bad tool, tool itself, but it's very important to know when something is misinformation or disinformation and this idea of just turning a blind eye to leading research institutions and universities or corporations that have a history of relying on funding from conflicted corporations is, is pitiful in many ways. So we're not going to have an answer that comes from government or from authorities or from big social, Google, anyone else. It is the grassroots that are going to win this one. That's the way it always has been. We've got the numbers. So the grassroots has to apply pressure to sort this out to ensure um, that, that scientific misinformation isn't being used as a weapon the way it currently is against the public and against science. Thank you very much. Please read the full article if this has resonated with you. Thanks very much. And details of our website are below as well. Thank you so much.